Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Two Under, Golf Pride, Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball. Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Adele Golf, hit it, flip it, dial it in. And the Mclemore Club Experience, live above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for coming back and joining me on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Very excited about tonight's show. I've got a great lineup that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. But I'm also super pumped because earlier today, I was notified that the show is being recognized with two awards for excellence from the Communicator Award. The first award is going to be the individual episode in sports, and the second is host. Folks, I am just absolutely blown away by the show winning an award for the second time in six months. I want to send out a huge thank you to all of you for listening. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have a show. And to all my guests, because our listeners are here for your stories, insights, and playing lessons. Thank you for sharing them with all of us and making the show what it is. And thank you to the Communicator Award for these two tremendous honors. Okay, on to tonight's show. My first guest is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. That's right. TP is finally back from parts unknown. If it seems to you like it's been forever since Tom has been a part of the show, that's because it has been. I'm looking forward to catching up with him tonight and see all the adventures that he's been on lately. Plus, get his thoughts on next week's PGA Championship. And then I need some playing lessons as I look ahead to my annual golf trip with my buddies next week. So I got to get things in tune and ready to go. And Maybe a couple of secrets here or there that they're they're not listening. So he can share with me. I save a few strokes, bring home the trophy. Excited to have TP back as part of the show. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from my all-time favorite author, Keith Hirschland. If you haven't gotten a copy of Keith's latest book, Song Girl, go right now to Amazon.com and order it. It's fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a character in the book. I think the book was great, even if Tom was a character in it. It's a lot of fun. It's a great read. We'll talk about that for sure. Plus, I'll get Keith's memories from when he was a producer at the Golf Channel, hear what his pet peeves were as a producer, plus working with some of our mutual friends, John Mahaffey and Dottie Pepper. Looking forward to having Keith back as part of the show. He'll join me about 20 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a return visit from one of the great artists on the planet, and that's Linda Harto. I'll get Linda's memories from painting pictures at Southern Hills Country Club site of next week's PGA Championship. We'll also talk about the painting she did for the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is the site of this year's U.S. Open, and how she determines just the right spot to do the paintings that she's going to do. Looking forward to catching up with Linda. She'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. And then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from Champions Tour Pro Scott Verplank. Scott played at Southern Hills the last two times it's hosted a major, the 2007 PGA Championship and then last year's Senior PGA Championship. We'll get his memories from playing in those events, particularly that 07 PGA 
which was played in August that year, and the temperatures averaged, averaged 100 degrees during those four rounds. The Champions Tour has a major this week at the Regent Tradition over in Birmingham, so we'll talk about that as well. Scott will join me at the top of the next hour. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, like I say, I want to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. Like I've been talking about, my buddies and I were headed there next week for our annual golf trip. And it's so amazing and beautiful up there. We had such a great time last year. That's why we're going back again this year. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility is great. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And the course lived up to every great expectation that we had for it going in. I can't say enough great things about it. Folks, go online to themaclemore.com to see how spectacular the place is for yourself. Golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said, Outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. Golf Digest agreed, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000, and Lynx Magazine doubled down on that, naming it one of the top 10 finishing holes in all of golf. See why we're all saying such great things about it by going online and checking it out for yourself, themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade. Golf is an interesting game because the better you hit the ball, the fewer shots you have to hit. That means the better you hit the ball, the less golf you actually have to play. That's why TaylorMade made the all-new Stealth Irons. Stealth Irons feature a cap-back design with a 3D toe wrap designed to help deliver increased distance through the bag and more forgiveness on those occasional, or maybe not so occasional, less-than-perfect shots. The result? Better shots more often, so you get to have more fun more often. So if you're the kind of golfer who wants to play less golf more often, try the all-new Stealth Irons from TaylorMade, Beyond Driven. All right, now finally back with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. It seems like forever since TP has been here with us. Clearly, his priorities are way out of whack. For everyone in Charlottesville, Virginia, be on the lookout. Tom has packed up the white beast, and he's headed your way. He's on his way back for a second year at Farmington Country Club, so if you're in the Virginia, West Virginia, or D.C. areas, go see Tom there. Take your game to new heights this summer, folks. He's just the best. If you can't go see him in person, download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing. He can help get you dialed in through the app. Plus, check out his website, TomPatry.com. Give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram at TomPatryGolf. And don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel, where you can watch nearly 150 free video playing lessons. He's uploaded some great ones over the last few weeks. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. And I'm so excited, I get to say, he is back with me again tonight. Here on Next on the T. TB, how are you, my friend? Christy boy. <laughs> I've missed that sound. How are you, my friend? Well, how are you, pal? How about these awards? How about the recognition this show and you're getting? How about how much it's deserved? How about people paying attention out there in the in the media world and Guess what, Golf Town? Guess what, ESPN? You're missing a boat on Christmas Carol. Oh, well, I appreciate you saying that, TP. It means a lot to me, my friend. Very lucky. I get to have great guests like you. That's that's what the show's all about. It's about the host, man. The host is the best. Let's move on. 
Tom, I want to start off by getting your thoughts about last week's Wells Fargo Championship. We saw an appearance by Jason Day and Ricky Fowler up there on the uh, leaderboard. Some flashes of their former selves. J-Day opened with rounds of 63 and 67 before a, a 79 kind of derailed things in the third round, but closed with a 70, finished tied for 15th. And Ricky opened strong with a 66, finished strong with a 68, wrapped those around a 72 and a 74. He gets a tie for 21st. Give me your thoughts on, on glimpses of these guys finally coming back to form that we're used to seeing them in. Well, I think, I think on the J-Day case, I, I was really excited after 36 holes, Chris, because he's, he's, he's one of my favorite players out there right now in this period of time. And he, he's just a guy, he's such a good guy he can pull for. And, and uh, unfortunately, I tuned in Saturday just to watch him and, and watch that 79 and the derail. So that kind of broke my heart a little bit. Had a couple of double crosses going and couldn't quite control the golf. On a very, by the way, on a very tough golf course in very tough conditions. But it shows his moxie too, coming back on Sunday and shooting seventy and kind of climbing back in and 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 and, and you know having a great finish there. I hope it's I hope it's a sign of things to come. I hope he's back to the J day we once knew. Um, one of the really good guys out there. As far as Ricky's concerned, I'm not excited yet about the twenty type of twenty first. I mean, and I'm a big Ricky fan, but God, he's been invisible for a long time now, Chris. And I don't know whether it's it's burnout, it's, it's golf swing problem, it's just uh, a lack of interest or what it is, but he's so talented and, he, and he's, he's so good for the game. He's such a positive guy. I was at Bay Hill this winter and watched him after missing the cut hang out and just sign autographs for well over an hour for a bunch of little kids and just hang out and talk to him. We need, we need more Rickies and more Jason Days in the world for sure. So along those lines, Tom, when guys have kind of been out of the, you know, the, the leaderboards and, and missing cuts and all that for a while, start to put it back together a little bit, at least finishing inside the top 25. Is it a, is it a mental thing at that point? Is it, I, I need to string several of these together to kind of prove it to myself that I belong out here still? What do you think both of those guys need in order to be back to where they were? Listen, they clearly have played you know, both those guys, you know, Chris have played tremendous golf in their career. Um, obviously, Jason's won a major, and, and Ricky, you know, remember, it's not, not too long ago, he finished second in four majors in one season. So, both of these guys are, are tremendous talents. But, you know, when, when your golf goes wrong, you know, whether it's mental or physical, we become very, very fragile. And, and climbing back into it can be, can be a, a long process or, 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 or not a process at all. Um, I think those guys are both pretty strong believers in their in their in their inner self. I think they'll be fine. Um, but we've seen some guys, because you and I both, Hunter Mahan, you know, we can go Sean O'Hare. Some guys are really fine players go sideways and and never find their way back again. So, you know, the golf game is a very fragile thing. I you know, I hope that these two guys we're talking about tonight can can climb you know climb back up the ladder and and, and play great golf again. But it's you know, it's a, it's a very fragile thing from the mental side for sure. Speaking about a fragile thing, as we look ahead to next week's PGA Championship, do you think Phil goes through with it and defends the title? And, and if he does show up out at Southern Hills, what kind of reception do you think he's going to get from fans? I, I, I don't think he's going to get the warmest reception from players. I mean, 
those guys, I mean, we, I'm not, I'm not a big Phil fan, Chris. I'm, I've never have been. Uh, I don't think the, the public persona and what really goes on behind the teams match up very well. And we'll just leave it at that. But, um, I was at a recent champions tour event in Naples and, and talked, I'm not going to name who I talked to, but a number of guys who, you know, were out there, uh, who just turned 50, just over 50 and obviously close in age to Phil and spent a lot of the same tour years on the PGA tour with Phil. And they're not particularly happy with Phil. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure for, for the right reason. I mean, I don't think behind the scenes he gets a very warm nod. Um, the public sees the happy, smiley face, the, you know, the, the kind of smart remarks and the, and the, and the big personality. Um, and, and listen, that's great for golf. It's great for golf. But, you know, what a shame that, you know, if you took Tiger off the planet the last 25 years, Phil would be the best player in the world in the last, in the last 25 years. His, his record is tremendous. I think, unfortunately, he's tainted his legacy in the last 12 to 15 months in such a way that he might be remembered when we write the record books and, and the history books 20 years from now for maybe the wrong thing. And that's, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. And to that point, Tom, how much do you think this has tainted his, whether you, his legacy, his reputation, what have you? And how much, are, when we look back 10, 15, 20 years from now, at this era on the PGA Tour, how much does this knock Phil down out of the conversation about fan favorites, greatest players of all time, all that sort of thing? I think I think last year's PGA got him certainly way up into the top 10 conversation of all time. Does this knock him out of that? No, I, listen, Chris, his record, his record is tremendous. Uh, being a Phil fan and not being a Phil fan is irrelevant. The fact that he He's accomplished what he's accomplished on the golf course speaks for itself. He's had a tremendous record, great record in majors. You know, he's, he's, he's won a million events. He's won all over the world. He's won, you know, he's, he's a great, great player. Um, and I think the public, the, the general public has a very short memory, especially the American public. I think the histor the historians of the game won't forget some of the things he did off the golf course that are not exactly kosher. Um, whether it's a Saudi thing or we've recently heard about the gambling and, and, the, and the amount of debt he ran up and, um, you know, the insider trading connection and, you know, so many things that were, were not really very cool, um, and, and damaged Phil the person. So I think we have to wait and see what history says about him, but I don't think the, the, the real true golf historian, um, are big Phil fans. Tom, switching gears to Tiger. We know Tiger is going to be there at Southern Hills as well. And um, I'm just not sure a month out from what we saw at Augusta National that he should have healed that much better. I hear Southern Hills is equally as difficult to walk as Augusta National is. Do you think Tiger is still under the impression that he can win the PGA next week? Or is this all towards building maybe to be really ready to go once we get to the Open Championship at St. Andrews? Oh, I think I think certainly physically we saw somebody that was very damaged at Augusta, but, you know, I'm so tired of, of betting against Tiger and getting my ass handed to me, Chris. <laughs> I'll, never bet, I'll never bet against him again. Um, you know, every time, you know, you, you, you put him in the coffin, he pops the lid open and comes out like Superman. So, um, you know, Southern Hills is not an easy walk. 
Southern Hills can be tremendously warm still, even, you know, even at this time of year. Um, it's not going to be easy physically, but, but the guy, you know, the guy is special and I would, it wouldn't surprise me if he struggled the same way he struggled at Augusta, but it also wouldn't surprise me if all of a sudden we looked up on Saturday or Sunday and he had posted some good numbers. Um, can he win? That's a whole nother question. I, you know, I don't know if he's ready to win yet, but yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think everything is being geared towards St. Andrews and, and the open championship and, and a very easy walk. Um, in, in potentially cooler temperatures. So, um, I'm not betting against it, Chris. I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to do it again. I get, I get my throat split again. <laughs> Tom, uh, you mentioned earlier being out at a Champions Tour event. I was out last week at TBC Sugarloaf here in Atlanta for the Mitsubishi Electric Classic. Saw your friend Fred Couples out there on the driving range, said hello to him for you. He said it right back. Talk about your relationship with Freddie. Well, that goes back a long way, Chris. I mean, I'm 63 now, and that goes back to 1980. Uh, we met at a uh, college event at Ohio State, um, and that, that was the first time we'd ever met. He, he was paired. We were paired with the University of Houston. He played in the group in front of me on day one. We uh, went back to the practice tee after day one, and we hit the ball side by side, just you know, again, it's not Fred Couples. We know, say it's Fred Couples, a college player, just like Tom Patrick, a college player. We kind of hit it off. We stayed in touch. Um, I qualified as a Division II player for the Division One National Championship that year, as did Houston. We we, uh, we connected again there um, at that NCAA, and we've been friends ever since. Um, Freddie is a, a unique individual, a, a guy that for the tremendous success he's had and the worldwide recognition that he's had and kind of a rock star. He's always just been Fred. He's never changed. He's, uh, he's extremely humble. Um, he, he, he is what he appears to be. Um, he doesn't garner a lot of attention. He doesn't like a lot of attention. Um, he, he's just a, he's, he's, he's a wonderful guy. And we've stayed in touch through the years and, uh, it's a friendship that I really valued. And, and because of that friendship, you know, the friendship with Joey LaCava came with that and uh, uh, relationship and a relationship and a friendship with Davis and, and some other players. Um, Freddie's been a, a tremendous friend and a, and a tremendous supporter. Matter of fact, did my did my forward for my book, The Six-Spoke Approach. Um, and, and, you know, just he's just always been there for me. So I, I have a lot of regard for Fred. Tom, switching gears, and uh, I've got my annual golf trip coming up next week, so i got to get my <laughs> mental game. Send me the check. Send me the check. <laughs> Maybe after this. We'll see. Depends on what, what kind of you shape want, you get me prepared for. You want, no, no, no. You want, you want a freebie up front. Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm telling you. I got, and, and not oh, just geez. one freebie. I, I, I need a few freebies. Go ahead. So, Go ahead. Fire away. Yeah, so let's start first. You know, I need help with my mental approach. So, Talk to me about swing changes. One of the things that I've been messing around with is is my grip. And one of the things when I was standing on the driving range and watching Freddie, watching Owen Brown, watching Scott McCarron, I noticed a, a lot of similarities for how they grip the golf club. So let's start there fundamentally. Tell me about what my grip should look, what all of our grips should look like when I'm staring down at my hands on the golf club. Well, the first first thing I'm gonna tell you, Chris, is if you're a week away from your your buddy match and you want to you want to bring home the cheese, you're not making a grip change a week out. We're not gonna do that. I mean, that's 
We're not changing. I'm making a major grip change a week away from playing competition. So if that's what's in your head, let's put that out of your head right away. As far as the grip itself is concerned, you know, I personally, as, as an instructor, like to see my players with a, with a moderately strong left-hand grip, which means a little bit more in the fingers, a little bit more of the, of the, of the hand, the left-hand dialed, a little bit more to the right. So I like a little stronger left-hand grip and a very neutral right-hand grip. Uh, that's my preference as a, as a coach. Uh, it's not a principle, that's a preference. Um, I, I, I like my players, especially my recreational player, to be able to release the club and get the ball to turn a little bit from right to left to add some yardage to their game because we all need a couple yards if we can get them. Um, but please, Chris, please promise me a week out you're not making a major grip change. Please promise me that. <laughs> all right. If you tell me not to, I won't. Let's... Um... Let's talk short game because somebody that I know very well once told me that, that that's an important part of, of the game. So when we are out on, you know, 150 yards in, we got a scoring club in our hands from what we, what our stance looks like on the tee, right? We've got our left for right handed players. Left shoulders is much higher than the right shoulder. Is that consistent from a stance perspective? When I've got a scoring club in my hand, or are my shoulders supposed to be a little more parallel to the ground? Well, first of all, I, I don't, I've never told anybody for the left shoulder to be substantially higher than the right shoulder. If God gave you two arms the same length, which I hope he did, and you put your right hand on the club just a fraction lower than your left hand when you grip the club, your right shoulder should be a, should be a fraction lower than the left and not overdone. The only, the only time it gets a little bit more substantially tilted, if you will, is with a driver because the ball is placed much more forward and you create a little bit more spine tilt with a driver to hit up on the golf ball as opposed to down on iron. And that's when the tilt might become a little bit more dramatic. But I think in general, I, I don't like the shoulders overly tilted. I just like the disparity between the left and the right shoulder to be the same disparity between the left hand and the right hand on the club. Um, and I don't consider scoring clubs from 150 in for a recreational player. Let's stick to 100 yards and in and see if we can get you get the wedges and the, and, the, and the short clubs on the green in a consistent manner, and let's not try to bite off more than we can choose there, Sparky. Um, <laughs> Jesus, Chris. <laughs> easy, boy. Easy with 150 yards. What are you hitting from 150 yards, by the way? Eight iron. You, you're, you're, you're a strong young lad, aren't you, pal? You're a very strong <laughs> young lad. So from, from, a, from a short iron standpoint, you know, Let's let's make very modified golf swings, and let's not try to max out a short iron. So, for example, my eight iron, if I hit if I hit it on a range and hit a full eight iron shot, it goes about 160. On the golf course, it's about a 148 club. Uh, a nine iron goes about 145, 150. On on the golf course, it's about a 137 to 139 club. So, see what I'm doing? I'm just dialing those things down. Because I'm trying to throw darts. I'm trying to control the trajectory, control the contact quality, control the spin rates, and, and, and control the, certainly the club face being delivered to the back of the golf ball. So I'm never really maxing it. I think the real key to scoring clubs, Chris, to answer your question is, and we're not trying to max them out on the golf course. So I, I'll take an eight iron. I'll grip it down a half an inch or an inch. I'll make a three-quarter to three-quarter swing. And I'll try to fight the ball and control, obviously, all those factors I just mentioned. Tom, another area where I and most of us struggle with, we get on a par five, we've hit a nice drive, we're well out, you know, we're not going to make the green in two, but a lot of times we pull the three wood to try to get as much distance, get it as close to the green as we can, 
The next thing you know, we chunk it, we top it, we hit a bad shot. Now we're still over 200 yards out and we're lying too. How can we do a better job? Either whether it's we, we hit the three wood clean off the deck or maybe we make a different judgment for what club we should pull so we make a better decision and we hit a different club to a, to a distance that we feel more comfortable with. What should we be doing yeah, we, after a good drive on a par five? I think the first evaluation, Chris, has to be the quality of the lie, not only, not only in terms of how the ball's sitting on the ground, but uphill, downhill, side hill, whatever it happens to be. If, listen, if you've got a great lie, a great lie, and you've got a relatively level stance, and you want to hit three wood up there, you know, understand, if you're three wood, how far does your three wood go? For me, it goes eh, about 215, 220. Okay. So we're trying to hit a 215 or 220. We're not trying to hit a 221 or 225. Or 231. We're trying to hit it 220 or 225. So we want to just hit a solid golf shot. So, you know, we just want to make a very, very controlled golf swing, a very balanced golf swing. And if you, if you're, if you look down at the lie, the quality of the lie or the quality of your stance, and it's impeded in any way, then we go to plan B. Okay. Maybe we should hit a hybrid down there. Maybe hit a, a four or five iron into a position where you can hit a wedge on the green. And we don't bite off more than we can chew. I think we have to make really good judgments on our individual skill levels and based on the hand we're dealt. I don't think the the first rule of thumb is to kill Kunga. You know, I think the first <laughs> rule of thumb is what's the safest shot for us to play into a position that allows us to score with a short iron, a wedge of some kind, or, you know, even if, we, if we're a good bunker player, can we get it into a greenside bunker and can we hit a good bunker shot that's an option, too, if you're a good bunker player. But I think we have to make some judgments back there based on what we find when we, when we walk up to our golf ball off the tee shot, what's the quality of the lie itself, and what's our stance going to be like, and what, can we, what, what kind of shot can we hit safely, put it into our next position. We're playing chess here. It's just a giant chess board, and how do we advance the golf ball? Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing. and. And whether it's uh, on your website or over social media. You know, Chris, well, like you mentioned at the top of the show, I'm, I'm sitting in Sea Island, Georgia right now, two days off with some friends on the way to Charlottesville, Virginia. Started Farmington on the 17th. I'm very excited about my second year there. Great facility, great membership. I can, I can see non-members there on a uh, base availability basis. Um, the website is simply tompatry.com. Then all the normal sites, Chris, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, so forth and so on. And the website is simply TomPatry.com. But more importantly tonight, more importantly tonight, this night should be about Christmas Caro, should be about Next on the T, should be about the awards you guys you just won, the hard work you put into the show, the great guests you have on, the homework you do. Bob Ford once told me, Chris Mascaro is the best guy at doing his homework he's ever been on a radio show or podcast with. That's coming from wow. one of the great golf professionals in this country. And it's true, Chris. It's true about you. You're humble. I appreciate your humbleness, but let's, let's tell all the people out here just the way it is. You're the best at what you do on, on the airwaves. Simple, cut and dry, no bullshit. That's it. Wow. Well, I appreciate all of that. Please tell Mr. Ford uh, I appreciate those comments and I appreciate you. So very much, DP. The show is much better when you're a part of it. I'm glad to have you back. Missed you for the, the month or so that you were gone. But I'm honored you're back with me again and looking forward to catching up with you again uh, in a couple of weeks. I love you, pal. Have a great show tonight.
Right back at you. Take care, TP. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. See you, man. Thanks. That is the great Tom Patry. TomPatry.com is the website. P-A-T-R-I is the spelling of his last name. And you got to check out his YouTube channel, folks. Again, 150 or so free video playing lessons available for you out there on YouTube. So please go out there and take advantage of that. Subscribe to that channel. Before I get to my next guest, Keith Hirschland, I want to give a shout out to a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Strixon Cleveland Golf. Your best performance starts with the right golf ball at Strixon. A global leader in golf ball technology and innovation, Strixon offers a wide variety of award-winning golf balls for golfers of every skill level. Whether you're searching for a tour performance golf ball or a distance golf ball with incredible feel, Strixon provides the best golf balls at incredible prices. Strixon offers a wide variety of personalized options while also developing a highly visible colored golf ball as well. Select the right golf ball for your game today and trust it with Strixon. Check them out online at Strixon.com. S-R-I-X-O-N.com. Find the right golf ball for your game today. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Sun Mountain. There's a company nestled in the valley of Missoula, Montana, that embodies the essence of quality, function, and innovation, and that's Sun Mountain, which started building golf bags back in 1981. They are an industry leader in golf bags, travel covers, outerwear, and push carts. With flagship products that you've come to know, like the C-130 cart bag, the 2.5 ultralight stand bag, the club glider travel cover, the speed cart, and Rainflex rain gear. Sun Mountain continues its quest to provide the very best in golf products to every range of golfer. Visit them online at sunmountaingolf.com to look at their amazing products. Okay, now back, and I'm honored to say this, for the 10th time, is my all-time favorite author and one of my favorite people anywhere on the planet, and that is Keith Hirschland. Keith has been a wonderful friend for several years, and he's been a great supporter of the show, which I'm very thankful for. He is an Emmy Award-winning TV producer. He has produced shows for ESPN, ESPN2, and the Golf Channel. In fact, Keith was one of the original people that started the Golf Channel back in 1995. He has also written five wonderful books, one of which is my all-time favorite book, which is Cover Me, Boys, I'm Going In, Tales of the Tube from a Broadcast Brat. He has also written great books titled Big Flies, The Flower Girl Murder, Murphy Murphy, and The Case of Serious Crisis, which was named Book of the Year by Book Talk Radio Club. His most recent five-star rated book is titled Song Girl, A Mystery in Two Verses. And when you read it, there may be a character named after a certain host on this show that you should look out for. And I'm honored to have Keith back with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Keith, how are you, my friend? Hi, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I want to just, before we get started, echo everything that Tom said about uh, uh, congratulations to you on the awards um, that are well-deserved. There is nobody, at least in terms of the folks with which I deal um, in your space, that does it any better than you. You're the best in the business, and uh, it's always an honor to be on your show. And I'm I'm really happy for you that uh, a lot of people are starting to see what a good job you do. So congratulations. Well, I thank you very much for that, my friend. It's uh, all thanks to great guests like you, though. Keith, let's, um, let's talk about all the accolades that are coming your way for your latest book, Song Girl. I've seen a number of five-star reviews out on Amazon, people on Twitter, 
raving about the book almost on a daily basis. Talk about the success you're seeing from Song Girl. Man, it's pretty surprising. You know, you never know, right? You you you, you sit down and you you put all your you know all the work into it, and you you have those uh, those times when you're wondering if it's any good, and you know you think it's pretty good, and then you have somebody read it and they think it's pretty good. That's all uh, super surprising, and and uh, you know I'm just really thankful that the folks who have uh, you know picked up the book and found it enjoyable and got a kick out of it and thought it was a good mystery. Um, I've liked it because, uh, you just, you know, you never know, you know, in this business, you never know what, what, uh, what's going to click and what somebody's going to like and what they're not going to like. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I couldn't be more thrilled that so far it seems that, uh, the folks who have read it enjoy it. And Keith, I've heard you tell this story on uh, some other shows, but for our audience, has, you had gotten well into writing this book, and instead of the main character talking in song titles, you had her talking in song lyrics, and then you learned, well, this could get me into a little bit of hot water with the writers and their managers, but song titles were fair game. Tell that story. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I, when I had first had the idea for the book, um, I thought that, you know, um, the concept was to have to write the entire book, the entire mystery, um, you know, around this character who, after a freak accident, awakens from a coma and can only speak in song titles. And I thought that would be really fun and challenging and to see if I could write an entire mystery with that premise. Uh, so I started down that path and, um, you know, I got, I got quite a, quite a ways into it when I hit my first detour, which was I realized that I couldn't sustain that for an entire 300 page novel i couldn't there was just no way that that was going to be you know because i started as i was writing it and reading it i started to get it, it got exhausting trying to figure out all these song song lyrics to put as dialogue so i changed tack a little bit and decided well i'll make this character you know one of the one of the main characters in a book that has other characters another title and and i had written the flower girl murder and thought it, my detective in Flower Girl Murder, Mark Allen, could certainly sustain another book. So I gave him another case to pursue and made Hannah Hunt, who is Song Girl. Hannah Hunt, by the way, is the the title of a song by a band called Vampire Weekend. So she was a, that was a natural character name for this character. Um, so I decided to make Hannah Hunt part of this Mark Allen story. Then. I kept going and I was having a ton of fun, you know, purchased a number of song lyric books and, you know, Paul Simon, and the Beatles and, you know, you know, hundred greatest song lyrics and, you know, all these books that I had in my library on the floor and I've got my highlighters out and, you know, green was main dialogue and yellow was, you know, not quite so main dialogue and orange was, you know, just some asides that this character might say. And I thought, you know what? I need to uh, kind of figure out what I have to do at the end of the book to, you know, do I have to put a glossary? Do I have to have, you know, do I have to thank people? Do I have to get permission? How do I, you know, how do I go about doing that? I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a brother who is uh, also an entertainment lawyer in Los Angeles. So I gave him a call and I said, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm halfway through this book. 
what what should my next step be before I you know keep going? And he just said, stop what you're doing right now. You can't. <laughs> and I said, wait, what do you mean? He said, you can't use song lyrics. You're going to get sued. And I said, but I'm halfway through this book. <laughs> you know, do I have to scrap the whole thing? And I said, what do you know? What do you mean? I, can I fake it? Can I, you know, can I like maybe just keep writing it and hope nobody reads it? And he said, you know, just stop being such a knucklehead. He said, stop what you're doing. He said, they, you know, these, these, uh, agents that work for, you know, songwriters and bands and, you know, lawyer, they have teams and teams of lawyers that are looking out for things just like this. And, you know, they're just going to, they're going to come after you. And I said, you know, and I was despondent. I was like, oh my God, I've just, you know, put in all this work and I have, I don't have a book anymore. And then he comes through with the silver lining, which is, as you said, song titles for whatever reason are fair game. So after breathing a little bit of a sigh of relief, I thought, okay, well, now I have to get back to work. And instead of using song lyrics, you know, I took, I took that next step and converted all of those things and had to rewrite all of Hannah Hunt's dialogue into, to make it song title. So that's, that's song girl in the book. So did you ever find out why song titles are a fair game? Is it because there are many songs with the same title? So that sort of opens things up or what? What is good about that? You know, that's a great question. And I think that's exactly right. I think the fact that, that, um, there's, there, are, I guess only so many titles that you can put that, 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 that it isn't considered, I guess, an intellectual property, the title of the song, as opposed to the lyrics inside the song. So, you know, I just, I took, I took my brother's word for it. And then I did a little more research and everything that I read and everybody else that I talked to said, yes, that is indeed the case that you can use song titles. You just can't use song lyrics. I don't, for the reason that that all became a okay is, uh, is, you know, I'm not sure of, but I'm glad that, that it's the case. And, uh, I'm not sure anybody <laughs> else has, you know, gone down the path of trying to write dialogue in, in only song titles, but, uh, I'm glad that I was able to do that. Keith, let's change gears a little bit. I want to take you back to your days at the Golf Channel when Comcast bought it out. What's it like when a new entity like that takes over and, and may not share the same vision that you guys had when you started the channel to begin with? Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a, it was kind of a double-edged sword or a, I'm going to use a bunch of, you know, I, I am working on my next book, which is Murphy Murphy and the case of the commission on cliches. So I'm going <laughs> to use some cliches. It was, it was kind of a double-edged sword and, and, you know, like you, you weren't, you weren't quite sure. It was exciting because you knew that what you had worked so hard on and so hard for for so many years was being recognized by somebody else as being valuable. So it was one of those things where you thought, man, I'm really proud. You know, we should all be proud as a group of what we did starting the golf channel and, and taking it to the point where, a, you know, a, a major corporation like Comcast was interested enough to want to buy it. Um, you know, and then they came in and, and, uh, Brian Roberts addressed the entire, you know, we had an all hands um, meeting and, you know, Brian Roberts stood at a podium next to Joe Gibbs and, and said, you know, how, what an amazing, you know, what an amazing thing he thought the golf channel was and how happy they were that Comcast was acquiring it and, and that, you know, 
it, they were requiring it because of all the hard work and good work that we had all done and to keep doing it. And they weren't going to change a thing. And, you know, they liked it just the way it was. And of course, you know, you know, that is never the case. So, um, over the course of the next handful of years, you know, everything changed pretty much everything changed, but, um, you know, in that, and in those initial stages, I think that everybody was just really fill, filled with a sense of pride and, and, um, you know, just the fact that, you know, when we started, when I got hired in October of 1994, I wish I had a dime for everybody who told me that I was making the biggest mistake of my life by going and joining this startup that was doomed for failure. If it lasted three months, everybody was going to be surprised. And, you know, look at it, you know, what? quarter of a century later it's right you know it's pretty cool it is keith producing a live sporting event in my mind has got to be a very high stress environment particularly for a golf tournament because you've got action going on all over the golf course at the same time and you're trying to coordinate all that action all the announcers who are scattered across the golf course people in the truck has to be controlled chaos what's it like trying to be the calm in the storm and keeping everybody focused. I think uh, your your description of control chaos is, is a perfect one. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it, golf is, golf is a, an interesting sport from a, from a behind the scenes perspective. And because, and I think I've told you this before, but, you know, in terms of sports, most, most stick and ball sports, um, our director sports because, um, there's, you know, kind of a goal or, or, you know, an, an objective and there is, um, one, you know, one ball in play or one puck or one, you know, one, one thing that, that guys are chasing or throwing or hitting. And then there is, you know, one team playing offense and one team playing defense. So nine times out of 10 in those sports, from a TV perspective, if your cameras are pointed at the ball, you're telling the story of the event. Now, everything, you know, that surrounds that is part of the broadcast. You know, if you go into the lives of the players or, you know, play calling or why did this guy run this route or did this, you know, did this pitch, did this pitcher throw this pitch at the right time? But in terms of watching the sport on television, the, you know, if the camera is pointed at the ball, the guy watching the, the guy or girl watching the game on TV can pretty much tell where the action is. And as you mentioned in golf, there are 156 balls. There are 18 fields of play. There is everybody's playing offense. Nobody's playing defense. And there are no scheduled timeouts for commercial breaks. So the producer, it's really a producer sport. Golf is because the producer has to decide who he's going to show when, you know, whether the producer is going to show that shot live or recorded moments ago, uh, you have to decide, you know, when to, you have, you have to break away from the action that's ongoing. They don't stop when you go to commercial. So you have to break, break away from the action when it's ongoing to get in the commercial breaks. That's why things like playing through and those kinds of uh, initiatives have been really kind of a boon for the, for at least in the production truck. Because you never really go away from the action. They just split the screen. So that, you know, we didn't have that when I was doing it. I had to go away to commercial break for two and a half or three minutes. And then you have all kinds of shots backed up, you know, that happened during the commercial break that you have to get in. As far as being the calm in the storm, I'm not sure that the 
the great, talented, wonderful people that I was lucky enough to work with would um, consider that I was always the calm in the storm. <laughs> um, I, I might have been the storm a handful of times, but, uh, um, you know, you have to stay calm. I mean, obviously, you're, you know, you're kind of in charge. And so, you know, getting getting uh, all riled up and emotional and screaming and yelling isn't really going to help the situation. But uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge and it, it helps to be uh, it helps to be able to uh, watch a number of things at once and listen to a number of people at the same time. Kind of a scatter, kind of a scatterbrain approach in terms of what's going on in your head. Did you have a pet peeve as a producer? <laughs> um, you know, I had a few of them, I think. Um, I think my, you know, my biggest one was a, a, a couple of big ones. One was, and still is when I watch, it's having the announcer tell me something that I can see for myself. That to me is, is, is one of the, my, one of my pet peeves and one of the, one of the no-nos in terms of, you know, what I would tell if I was still doing it, what I would tell folks that were announcing, uh, under, under me would be like, people can see that that putt just missed or, he, oh, he left that a little bit short or, that was just a little bit, you know, uh, you know, the, the ball is rolling off the, the right side of the green. It's, it's television. You know, people, people can see that. So what you have to tell people is why that happened or, um, what would be better in my opinion is don't say anything at all. Just let, let them watch it. That, um, I think that certain terms always drove me crazy. Um, you know, unbelievable to me is the worst word you could ever use. If you're um, broadcasting a professional sport, because these are the best in the world at what they do. And I can't think of any situation that a PGA Tour player, uh, any shot that a PGA Tour player pulls off, I would describe as unbelievable. I mean, there are so many other other words, you know, um, unexpected, you know, spectacular, uh, amazing, um, you know, get us the thesaurus out and, and just, you know, it's not unbelievable. And perfect is another one. To me, you know, you can't have the only perfect shot on a golf course is one that ends up in the hole. So um, when announcers say, you know, oh, that's a perfect drive. It's well, if it didn't go in the hole, it's not perfect. It could be perfectly placed in the fairway. Um, that's, you know, that's perfectly acceptable to me. But you know, to say perfect, to say unbelievable, to say, you know, those are the kind of things that always drove me crazy. Keith, I know you've worked with some great friends of this show, like John Mahaffey, Dottie Pepper, Frank Novello, to name just a few. All great players out on tour. And tour players, like you said, are the best of the best at what they do. Plus, they're independent contractors. But now they show up on your set, and I'm sure they're a little nervous, and certainly, you know, they're... <laughs> not used to somebody speaking to them in their ear when they're trying to talk. How do you kind of coordinate a, a, a guy or a gal who's a great tour player, bring them over and help them get situated for how to do great television? That's a great question. And some of them, you know, some of them picked up on it and, and have done an amazing job. And the, the folks that you mentioned were, were among the best at it and still are. I know John's not doing TV anymore, but um, he was, he was really good and, and Frank and I mean, Dottie, I mean, those two are, you know, among, among the best, um, you know, golf broadcasters working today. 
Um, I think that, you know, what I always tried to tell them was that, you know, I had to, I had to get them out of the mindset of, of what they were used to as a player in terms of practicing, 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 always kind of in their minds led them to, you know, and I, I, I shouldn't say practice makes perfect, but the more they practiced, they felt the better they got. And, you know, what I had to get them out of that mindset of, you know, this is going to be more, you know, of a think of yourself as a viewer, as a fan, react to what is going on around you in real time, as opposed to trying to, you know, sit and, and watch somebody else's golf tournament on TV and practice how you would announce that golf tournament on TV. It, it's more of a, you know, I, I would tell them that it's like you, you know, golf, you know, what the players are going through. You have been in those situations. So this should be an easy thing for you to talk about. And I said, that's, you know, that's what I want you to do. I don't want you to be an announcer. I want you to be a golfer talking to a guy sitting at home and explaining why something is happening on the golf course. And, um, you know, I said, I can, I can help you do that. I can set you up to be successful at that. What I don't want you to think you have to do is become a television announcer because that's not the job. The job is for you to be a golfer talking about golf. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll go through the mechanics. If you don't want me to talk in your ear, you know, while you're talking, I won't. If you don't want me to, you know, give you more information, if you want me to give you less information than I'm giving you or more information than I'm giving you, I will. You know, that's, I can, I can adjust to you. What I want you to do is feel comfortable in the space that you're talking about golf when it's your turn to talk on during the coverage. Keith, you got to spend a lot of time with players on what's now the Corn Ferry Tour. And back in 2011, the top money winners were making three to $400,000, which is a lot of money until you take things out like taxes and caddy fees and paying for your <laughs> own travel and meals and hotel, et cetera, all those sorts of things. Did those players talk to you about the financial struggle and the pressures of trying to stay on tour and to be able to afford to be able to stay on tour? Some of them did, but you know, I would say that if, if, if my memory serves me, you know, the, 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 there was this kind of a two different groups of, of players when we were doing the nationwide tour, the corn, what is the corn ferry tour now? Um, you know, it was kind of, there were these, these young guns that were out there first year, first couple of years on tour that, you know, thought that, you know, they were going to, you know, be the next, next great thing and weren't, weren't thinking about anything other than playing the best golf they could play so they could get their, their tushies onto the PGA tour and start, you know, showing everybody how good they were. And then there was this kind of group of players that were, you know, had been either bounced back and forth from the PGA tour back down to the corn Ferry tour or that we're maybe spending the next handful of years, um, you know, just trying to fine tune their games, getting ready for the champions tour. And those were the guys that would talk about, you know, how tough it was um, just to, you know, just to pay the bills and stay afloat and keep the dream alive. And, you know, the young guys were, you know, they, they just threw caution to the wind. They just wanted to go play golf and, you know, they, they were just of the mindset that I, you know, I am good enough that, 
you know, the, the money's going to come, you know, the, the, that's, that's the last thing on my mind. The, the only thing on my mind right now is, is, you know, winning these tournaments or finishing in the, gosh, when we were doing it, it went from, you know, the top five, to the top 10, to the top 20, to the top 25. So that was the goal. That was the only thing that they were thinking about, but there was a subset of guys that you could tell were, you know, they, they were grinding. They, they knew that they needed a, you know, a top 10 finish, you know, just to, to, to support the lifestyle that they needed to support. And, you know, you kind of, you know, you felt for those guys because you wanted them to succeed and you want, you know, they, they, that I have said this a hundred times that, you know, I've produced and been around a lot of sports and, and a lot of athletes and, and golf. I, you know, you, you can't find a better group of, of, professional athletes than the than the guys that play on on the PGA tour, on the Champions Tour, on the Corn Ferry Tour, on the European Tour. I mean it's just it's just a great group of people. So you always you rooted for all of them. But you could tell there were folks out there that, you know, they needed to make a check to pay some bills and you kind of rooted extra hard extra hard for those guys. Keith, just a couple more before I let you go. And knowing players, knowing guys out on tour the way you do do you think Phil should have any trepidation about showing up at the PGA Championship next week at Southern Hills outside of needing to avoid Greg Norman and the Saudis? Gosh, I you, you hope that he would feel comfortable just showing up and and being able to defend his championship, don't you? I mean, don't you yep. wish that for the guy that you know been you know such a huge part of the game? I mean, I was lucky enough when I first started working for ESPN one of the first tournaments I did was the Tucson Open that he won as an amateur and you know I mean the the guy has been such an amazing player and an amazing ambassador for the game um you would what I hope what I would hope for him is that he can show up at the at a major championship to defend his title and have some peace in doing that um you know the rest of the stuff is noise and you know, who knows what choices people make and, and what they do once they make those choices. But, you know, for, for that week, I, I would just love it for Phil to be able to be in that bubble and be able to defend and just feel like he was in a safe space. Keith, before I let you go, let our listeners know again, you got a new book that you're working on. Talk about that and then how they can get a copy of the others that, uh, that you already have out. Oh, you're nice, Chris. Thank you for that opportunity. And as always, I want to thank the folks at Beacon Publishing. Bobby, Bobby Collins saw something in me. And so far he's, uh, he's liked my work enough to, to take it to his bosses and say, let's, let's publish. But you're right. Um, Murphy Murphy in the case of serious crisis, which was just before Song Girl. Um, always, I always intended that to be a trilogy. So the second time Murphy Murphy is now, um, trying to solve a case that involves the commission on cliches. So once that is up, then he'll turn his, uh, turn his attention to maybe a collaboration with the pun police. So that will be the Murphy Murphy <laughs> trilogy that, um, ha- you know, two thirds of it is still in the future, but, um, song girl is, uh, doing great. It's on Amazon. It's at, um, keithhurstland.com and it's at beaconpublishinggroup.com. And you can pick yourself up a copy. It's a it's a fun read. It's not as fun as Murphy Murphy, but I think it's a good mystery, and I and I think people will enjoy uh, enjoy try, you know, enjoy trying to find the song titles. One critic uh, called my writing um, a literary Easter egg hunt, so I, li- <laughs> I like that. So I'm going to go with that. 
That's awesome. And so are you. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're my all-time favorite author and just one of my favorite people anywhere on the planet. I well, can't thank you we enough. We didn't even talk friend. about your character, Christmas, Christmas Carol <laughs> the Biker, the head of the biker gang. People, read this book. If you like Christmas Carol, you're going to like Tron Girl. He's one of my favorite characters in the book. Anyway, thanks, wow. Chris. It's always a pleasure being it. with you. Take care, Keith. All the best you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You too. Yep. Look forward to it. See you, Keith. That is a great Keith Hirschland. Again, Tron Girl is fantastic. And I'm one of the many honors that I've had doing this show is the fact that Keith Hirschland called me one day and asked me if he could make me a character in the book. And uh, you'll find me at CT Mascaro, as you guys know, is is my handle on Twitter, and you'll recognize that as a character in the book. So I can't thank Keith enough for thinking enough of me to want to use my name as a as a character, and uh, like I say, come back and be a part of the show ten times now. To have your favorite author and a great friend continue to come back that many times means a great deal to me. So and like like I say, and so does Keith. So look forward to catching up with him again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Linda Harto, I want to talk to you about our friends over at Adele Golf. Have you been custom fit for your putter or even for your wedges? Adele Golf is the industry leader in scoring club fitting. Their putter fitting system is the most complete putter fitting system in golf. The EAS line of putters can get your putting dialed in. Also check out their swing match system wedges with weight adjustability to make sure your wedges are truly fit to your swing. Go to AdeleGolf.com and schedule your fitting today. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented Squares Toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground, effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, get the Squares 30-day money-back guarantee, and use promo code DISTANCE to get $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. Squares, the distance golf shoe. Okay, now back in next on the tee with me is Linda Harto. I had the privilege of having Linda on the show last August. She's a tremendous artistic talent. Let me remind you about our background. She grew up in the countrysides of Wilmington, Delaware, and Louisville, Kentucky. She took to art at the age of six. She spent the early part of her career up in Chicago, where she earned her fine arts degree at the Art Institute of Chicago. Back in the 70s, she started selling her art, prints, and posters there locally. She moved near Hilton Head back in 1980. She has since become recognized as one of the best golf artists on the planet. She is the only person to be commissioned to do annual paintings of the U.S. Open and the Open Championship by the USGA and the RNA. You can see her amazing work and purchase prints online at lindaharto.com, and her last name is spelled H-A-R-T-O-U-G-H.com. So lindaharto.com, and I'm honored to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Linda, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thank you, Chris. That was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Linda, like I said in your introduction, it's been about nine months since we got to have you as part of this show. Catch us up. What's been going on with you so far in 22? 
Oh, uh, you know, I've got some private commissions. I've been doing um, different paintings, and I had worked on a commission for um, Glenview last year. I think they had the um, Western Amateur there. So, yeah, basically that's, that's what I'm doing, uh, work for private clients and also for clubs or their, uh, to commemorate a, maybe a anniversary or, you know, some special club event. So that keeps me busy. Linda, remind our listeners, as, as a young artist, what got you mm-hmm. excited about painting all the great golf courses that we have, not just here in this country, but around the world? Well, it had to do with uh, me getting a commission from Augusta National in 1984 to paint the 13th hole. And, uh, you know, at that time, I had no idea it was going to start a 38-year career in painting golf landscape, but <laughs> that's what happened. <laughs> How did Augusta National get to know you? Well, they had seen my uh, landscapes and a Hilton Head Gallery and asked if I could do a golf course. And I was like, yeah, sure, be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I thought it would be, you know, just one and done and that would be it. But I uh, started doing an annual one with them and then other clubs would call me and pretty soon that's all I was doing. And then I met someone, an agent from um, Scotland, went over there in 1988 and then that got me introduced to the RNA and wow, it was just US Open that same year. I started the series in 1990 with both US Open and the Open Championship, so I was pretty busy. Linda, last week I had the privilege of having Megan Yonkman on the show. She's the Director of Instruction up at Bethpage State Park, and I saw mm-hmm. you painted the 4th and the 17th holes at Bethpage right. Black. What do you remember about mm-hmm. capturing those two holes? Uh, the 4th hole, I thought it was just, I thought it was one of the best paintings I ever did. I mean, that landscape was just Awesome. I mean, with the hills, and it was just incredible. So I just, and I happened to catch that one and kind of almost fall. So it was just, to me, one of the best paintings I ever did. It was just a beautiful scene. And the 17th, as it turned out, was very key in the 2000, I guess it was 2002 U.S. Open. So when the 2009 came around, I thought that would be a good one to do because it was such a uh, key hole in that tournament. So, Linda, when you're commissioned to do a painting of any one of these Mm -hmm. golf courses, how do you determine, A, which hole you want to (laughs) use, and then the angle and all the things that go into deciding just exactly how to make the painting just right? Well, it takes a lot of reference work. Uh, I I go to the course and, you know, depending on uh, what course it is, if I know the course or if there are certain holes that are well known that most people uh, are aware of. And if that's the case, I'll narrow it down to them. And then, then it's a matter of finding the right lighting and maybe even the right season. Uh, to show it off 
as, you know, in all the best possible ways. And that, to me, that makes an exciting piece of art to do when I can get all those elements together. And I like to pick a hole that really kind of tells you where you are. You know, it's it kind of will sum up the character of the course or give you a sense of place. So it, sometimes you really have to look, and I discuss it with a number of people there, too, so it comes to a consensus, kind of, that which one is best. So, Linda, like you mentioned, are you going back several times, different seasons, different times of day, different days of the month, trying to catch it so it's just right for what you're looking for? Sometimes, definitely. Yeah, I've gone back if I didn't get what I want. And like with Augusta National, I'd went many times there, and I'd go in. Uh, I'd go in the winter because the light angle changes, so I might get a better angle. Uh, the light might be different. Linda, when you're going there and you're looking at images, or you're looking at the different times of year to understand the lighting and where the sun's at, and all those sorts of things, how do you know when you've got it just right? Gosh, you know, it, it's just like when all these elements come together and it just makes maybe the lighting, I think, is the most important element in my painting. And depending on the hole, how you want it to uh, show that hole so that the the golfer can really relate to it and see it, see how it's played. And sometimes... You just have to search for that kind of light that really shows that whole law uh, the way I want. And I make you see it the way I want you to see it, basically. So I have to find that those elements. And, uh, yeah, sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes it happens real quick. <laughs> just depends. Yeah, are you taking... Depends on the weather, too. <laughs> no doubt. Are you taking a yep. bunch of pictures and taking and developing oh, yeah. the pictures and then going back to your studio? Are you setting up outside, yeah. you know, like, like no, we no. traditionally take a, easels and all of that? No, I tried that really early on and I found that very unworkable. <laughs> you, you can't sit there in the middle of a golf hole. <laughs> you know, you can't be in play. <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, I just learned to use the camera, and then I used to carry around a couple camera bodies and a lots of film, and then I switched to digital, and that was made it a little easier, and I could take a whole lot more pictures then because, you know, a digital thing is like zillions on one little gigabyte thing. So, yeah, it, it, and I take every detail or if I see uh, wildlife on there I'll take lots of pictures of whatever lives on the hole and flowers and you know just endless details Linda you also yeah you also (laughs) painted Southern Hills which is the site of next week's PGA championship what do you remember Mm -hmm. about that property uh it's Again, very hilly, um, lush, beautiful. Um, you know, there was water on that hole. It was really a nice, nice angle on that hole. And actually, um, 
the print that I did for the 2001 U.S. Open, the limited edition print, we're actually going to be giving that away next week with a Guess the Winner contest on our website. So hopefully everybody will sign up and, and try to guess the winner and maybe win that print. Yeah, to let our listeners know how you do that every week. So you, you put well, out a guess the week. winner. We we do it very often though, especially for the majors and the and the more notable tournaments. We we do uh guess the winner. And and people really enjoy it and I really enjoy the participation of people trying to trying to guess the winner. And then they get a print if they if they win. Are you going to be at Southern Hills? Do you go to the tournaments to check it out? I used to go, yes. I used to go to the U.S. Open every year, the Masters every year, uh, because I worked in the merchandise tent. Uh, I went to 25 U.S. Open. So. <laughs> but mostly now I just do private commissions. I don't do tournament work too much anymore. Next month, the U.S. Open is going to be back at the Country Club in Brookline, Massachusetts. Yeah. You've got a great painting of the ninth hole from that golf course on your website. Talk about that. Yes. Uh, yes, I've painted two there, the third hole and the ninth hole. And we will be giving away a print of the third hole for the U.S. Open. And, of course, then um the Open Championship will be at St. Andrews, and we'll be giving away a St. Andrews print. Linda, remind our listeners, you talked about this last time, but what the Academy mm -hmm. of Golf Art is and how they are advancing golf art beyond the fine arts genre. Well, uh, basically, we formed it to encourage artists uh, who may not maybe necessarily specialize in golf landscape but or golf theme art, but it was to encourage them to and provide them with a way of connecting with collectors and participating in exhibitions and just promoting the genre in general, uh, trying to raise awareness that it is a fine art genre. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's what we've been working on. Uh, we've had museum shows and art center shows and various get-togethers. So, yeah, it's a nice way to connect with others that do it and also with collectors. Linda, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're up to, whether it's following you on your website or over social media as well. Uh, yeah, just go to the website, that which is carto.com, and just sign up for the emails, and that way you'll know what I'm doing, and you can enter a contest and maybe win a print, and uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Well, Linda, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of the show. I always enjoy hearing about the projects you're working on and the, and talking about the paintings that you've done because they're just so outstanding. I thank you very well, much for being here, and I look forward to catching up with you again sometime soon. Thank you very much, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care, Linda. All the best to you and your family. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye.
That is the great Linda Harto, and lindaharto.com is the is the website. Uh, special shout out to Sally Sportsman for connecting Linda and I. Thank you, Linda, for putting the interview together tonight. Linda is a treat. She's fantastic. I look forward to catching up with her again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Scott Verplank, I want to remind you about a couple of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs have just released their new Spring and Summer 22 collections with fun, new, and exciting prints like the Freedom 2 and 3, Santa Fe, Tigers, Zebras, and Duckies, and their new exclusive Folds of Honor collection where they donate 20% of all Folds of Honor sales proceeds to that cause. The patented Joey Pouch technology delivers maximum comfort, fit, and performance while preventing any unwanted skin-on-skin contact or chafing. Good for anything from the golf course, to the boardroom, to the bedroom. You can find these two underperformance briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, all PGA Tour superstores, Golf Galaxy, Dillard's, and other fine retailers near you. You can also order them online at twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R dot com. Two under, performance in your pants. Use code NEXT20, that's N-X-T. T-E-E-20 for a 20% discount on the Two Under website. also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with 4 additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet. The winningest grip on tour. Grip confidence. Grip golf pride. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Champions Tour Pro Scott Verplank. Let me remind you about Scott's background. He's from Dallas, Texas, and played his college golf at Oklahoma State, where as a freshman, he was a member of their 1983 National Championship team, and he finished tied for second individually. That year, Scott was named a second-team All-American, He would go on to be named a first-team All-American each of his next three seasons. Scott won the Big 8 Championship in 1984. He also won the Western Amateur Championship and the U.S. Amateur Championship that year as well. Scott was a member of the victorious 1985 U.S. Walker Cup team. He finished that event 3-0-1, including defeating Colin Montgomery 1-up in the singles matches. 1986 was a huge year for Scott. He was named the Big 8 Athlete of the Year the National Player of the Year, and he won the NCAA National Championship. He also became the only senior in Oklahoma State history to win four tournaments in one season. He was also the first NCAA champion to be named Academic All-American, which he did in back-to-back years in 1985 and 86. He also turned pro after graduating in 86. Scott won five times on the PGA Tour, including winning the 1985 Western Open as an amateur while he was still at Oklahoma State. He was a member of two Ryder Cup teams. He has top 10 finishes in all four majors. He was named the PGA Tour Comeback Player of the Year in 1998. You can see Scott now playing out on the Champions Tour, and I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, You bet, Chris. I'm happy to be here. Scott, as we look ahead to next week's PGA Championship at Southern Hills, you finished tied for ninth when the PGA was held there back in 2007. You guys played there last year for the Senior PGA Championship, but 
Looking at that 07 PGA, you're right there with Tiger after 36 holes. The tournament back then was played in mid-August, and the heat was brutal. I was reading, averaging about 100 degrees each day. What do you remember about surviving that 2007 PGA? Um, survival is the right word. It was it was brutal. It was obviously in August, uh, very little wind blowing, really hot. You know, like I said, 100 degrees. Um, it, it was incredible. It was uh, spectators were going down left and right, which was sad, but it was what was going on. Um, it was, I mean, it was a tough, tough week. Um, and you know what? This coming week, uh, the weather should be quite a bit more palatable. Um, probably be in the eighties and the golf course will still be hard, but it, but it won't be because of the sweltering heat. How'd you keep yourself hydrated during that tournament and, you know, keep your body right so you can at least Stay focused from shot to shot and not focus on the heat that was bearing down on you. Well, listen, when it's like that, um, anything you do is not enough. I mean, to be honest with you, <laughs> um, it just, it, it was just so hot. You just drink as much water as you can. Um, I learned a little trick. You put an ice cube underneath your hat on top of your head. <laughs> You know, when you, you have, they got coolers with water in them and stuff on every tee and you grab a little ice cube and stick it on top of your head, put it underneath your hat and that kind of, it melts by the time you get to the green or whatever, but that kind of, do anything you can do to stay cool, um, and keep your focus is the only thing that, that really matters. Um, I kind of, I do remember I kind of ran out of gas, to be honest with you. I mean, I played pretty well, um, overall, but, it just, it was grueling. And, you know, the best athlete guy who was most prepared for it won the tournament, um, which was the case to quite a bit back in those days. Um, yeah, it was, it was brutal. What was it like for you being paired with Tiger in a major? Oh, it was great. It was actually kind of funny because, you know, Tiger, um, Tiger's Tiger and in his, you know, in his, even today, but you know, in his heyday, you know, there'd be thousands of people out there, you know, dressed in red or, you know, souped up in Tiger stuff. And, you know, we teed off, we were last off on Saturday and it was kind of funny because, you know, I went to Oklahoma State, Tulsa is a big Oklahoma State city and we were walking off the first tee and all the people in red were on the left side of the fairway. And all the people on the right side of the fairway were in orange. And we were walking off the tee kind of laughing. I said, hey, man, what's it like to only have half the people pulling for you? Um, <laughs> and we kind of laughed. You know? I mean, it was so loud. It was incredible. Um, but obviously, he went on and played great, won the tournament. Um, but it was, it was it was great. There'll be a, you know, there's a bunch of Oklahoma State guys, uh, six or eight of them that are in the tournament this week. So it'll be a huge uh, – orange present you know presence again at southern hills um and it, it was fun i mean southern hills is such a great golf course an iconic place and i think it'll be uh i think we got a great break the weather's going to be really good it looks like and the golf course is gonna barely make it into 
supreme condition, but it'll be it'll be great. How does Southern Hills compare to walking Augusta National? Because I've heard it's either on par or maybe even a little bit of a harder walk than Augusta National is. Well, you know, the big there's a big ridge that runs through the property, and that's where the first tee is, and the tenth tee, and then uh, a few of the greens. But uh, there's there's not many places, in all honesty, uh, that compare to walking Augusta. Just the the hills, if you've never been there. I'm sure you have, but uh, your listeners, if you've never been there, television doesn't do it justice with how hilly it is and how tough a walk it is. But, um, you know, in in Tiger's case, I was actually there uh, about 10 or or, 12 days ago um, preparing for television stuff, and it was the day that Tiger was there. And, you know, he he walked, um, and... You know, it's amazing that he is walking and playing, but it'll be a little bit easier walk than Augusta National. Scott, like I mentioned in your intro, you played on the victorious Walker Cup team in 1985. You defeated Colin Montgomery in the singles matches. When you see Colin out there on the Champions Tour now, is that that little something you still get an opportunity to needle him about? Oh, you know what? Chris, I actually, someone sent me a picture about a year ago um, from that Walker Cup, and it was calling. Obviously, we both, you know, 30, gosh, more than 30, 35 plus years ago. And we both look like such little kids. And I showed him the picture. <laughs> I said, is that really you? And it was, yeah, we got we got a good chuckle out of it. Um, Colin's a good man, though. Guys, you got to represent the country on two Ryder Cup teams as well back in the early 2000s. In 02, we, we lost a close one. Curtis Strange was our, our U.S. captain at the time. You were paired with a great friend of this show, Hal Sutton, in the afternoon foursomes on Friday, and you guys defeated Darren Clark and Thomas Bjorn 2-1, and one. and later you defeated Lee Westwood 2-1 and one in the Sunday singles matches. What do you remember about that experience in particular? What's it like in your first Ryder Cup match to be on the first tee and try to pull the club back? Um, you know, to be quite honest with you, it was the greatest. I played. I was lucky enough to play two Ryder Cups, and it's it's the greatest event in golf. Um, you know, I'm a huge football fan, but I you know I I want to say it's the greatest event in sport. Um, it's just so cool. And, um, I was lucky because I was just so excited to be there, so happy and thrilled to be on the representing the United States that I really wasn't nervous. I was like, I had the biggest smile on my face and I was so jacked up, excited, fun that I wasn't nervous. I was like, man, it doesn't get any better than this. So that's always the way I looked at it. Um, you know, I played pretty good in the two Ryder Cups I played in because I think I didn't really feel the pressure. I just felt like, man, this is the pinnacle, um, you know, for for televised golf and, you know, for golf entertainment and all that. The Ryder Cup is the pinnacle. And I was just like so lucky and happy to be a part of it that why would you be nervous? I mean, if you're nervous about it, then, then you know, what you, what have you been working for? So I think most guys now appreciate how much fun it is and how cool it is to be on a team. And there is nerves, but there's also a 
tremendous appreciation and a great excitement and enjoyment about being a part of one of those teams. Yeah, so let's take that a, a, a step uh, further. You won your singles matches in both Ryder Cup appearances and the Walker Cup. Talk about harnessing that energy, harnessing that adrenaline, and what about being on that stage brought out the best in you? Um, well, I mean, obviously, uh, like every professional, you're a competitor. Um, but when you get into a, a situation where you're, you're, you feel like you're being rewarded for, uh, being there because it's such a great stage that, you know, if your attitude is not great for playing in one of those, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. You probably need to be doing something else. Um, and if you can't enjoy playing in a Ryder Cup, then uh, you definitely need to be doing something else. So um, I, I really think that was it. I was just both times I played, and I played a couple President's Cups too, which is a, a great event. Not the same as the Ryder Cup, but it's um, it, it's still equally fun. Uh, but man, it's just that's kind of what you play for to be uh, part of a team and recognized on a team that the best players in the world. So um, I think I think that uh, my good friend Captain Stricker last year kind of employed that to all his guys that, hey, listen, uh, you deserve to be here. You're the best players in the world. Go out and enjoy all these people pulling for you. And, you know, and we did great. So um, it's a big attitude thing. And, and uh, if you... Enjoy it as much as you probably should. Probably play pretty good. Speaking about it's what you play for, and you had seven top ten finishes in majors from 2001 to 2011, including a tie for fourth at the 2001 PGA Championship here in Atlanta at the Atlanta Athletic Club. Talk about being in the mix in a major, and it sounds like you were never nervous because. That's what you were supposed to do. Well, I, I wouldn't say the, indi the individual events were a little, it's all you and you're all putting that extra. Uh, I never felt near as excited, or I shouldn't say excited, but as comfortable and, and uh, kind of happy about being there as I was during a Ryder Cup. Um, I, of course, I was very happy, but, you know, everybody puts pressure on themselves in a different way. Um, and obviously I, I won the U.S. Amateur, but I never won a professional major. So I, I can't sit here and tell you that I know what that's like. And if that would bring greater joy, I think maybe winning the Masters might bring greater joy than playing in a Ryder Cup, but I've never done it. So I don't know. But, um, uh, you know, it's, it's different. It's just totally different when you're on a, a, a team that you've been building to make for a year or two and you're with your, you know, 10 or 12 closest peers, um, for a week and you're trying and you're playing for the United States of America. Um, that's a different, that's a different level of motivation and a different level of, uh, oh, focused and, and determination than when you're playing as an individual. Scott, if you could get a mulligan and go back and 
play a different swing in any one of those majors where you finished in the top 10 over that decade of 01 to 11, which one would you like another shot at? Oh, the, the uh, 2011 PGA at Atlanta Athletic Club. Um, on the on the 71st hole, which was the 17th hole on Sunday, Keegan and I were tied um, going to that hole. And I, you know, I was 47 years old and facing wrist surgery within a couple of months. I didn't necessarily know it at the time, but I was kind of beat up. But um, we got on 17, and, and uh, I said, you know what, I got to go with the flag. And it was that little tucked pin on the left there, not much room. And I hit, I was kind of in between clubs, and I uh, went with I went with a 7-iron trying to hit kind of a three-quarter shot instead of a, a kind of ripping an eight iron and I I just pulled it about two yards and it hit the rock, went in the water, Keegan blew it out there forty feet right of the hole, uh, and made the putt. And I'm thrilled that I finished fourth, but that was the I kinda said, you know what, if I'm ever gonna win a major, I'm I'm already old and crap beat out of me and I'm I'm forty seven years old, so I'm like, dude, well, I can't back down now. <laughs> So I went for it, and, you know, I ended up making double, hard to last hole, and finished fourth, which was still pretty good. But that would be the one shot that uh, if I could do it again, I would either think clear with the seven iron or I would just get up there and say, all right, it's kind of, you know, all out with an eight iron, got to stuff it and win the golf tournament. So, but hey, I'm lucky that I had that chance. So there's really no regrets. Got just a couple more before I let you go. And you guys have a couple of majors coming up on the Champions Tour, starting with the Regents Tradition this week at Greystone Golf and Country Club over in Birmingham. How do you feel about your game and your opportunity this week? Well, I I, I don't feel terrible about my game. I actually had shoulder surgery in September of last year for a nerve problem. So I'm about 70% back to full strength. But I've been showing signs of moving forward, so um, I still got a ways to go. Uh, but listen, I'm uh, I enjoy competing, and it's going to be warm here, so that's going to help me if I kind of get everything, all my ducks in a row. And um, I played nine holes today with Stricker and Furick, so I kind of know what I'm up against. Um, and if I get all my ducks in a row, then you know, I may have a chance. So I'm looking forward to that. Then you guys have a week off, and then it's off to Penn Harbor, Michigan, for the Senior PGA at Harbor Shores Resort. You've got two majors in the span of three weeks, sandwiched, you know, in between an off week. Do you like that? Do you like having the almost back-to-back majors with an off week in between? Do you like to have more time off between majors because it's a a mental grind. What do you think about this three-week stretch of two majors? Well, um, you know what? In all honesty, it's it's okay. Um, <clears throat> Chris, I'm actually doing uh, television next week at the PGA at Southern Hills, and then I am not playing the senior PGA because my youngest of four children is graduating high school. <clears throat> so I'm going to do uh, – television for ESPN next week and then I'm going to sit at home and watch my daughter graduate during the senior PGA so I'm actually feeling great about that week. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. Good for her. 
Good for you. Scott, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can we stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online or it's on social media? Well, I'm not a huge uh, Twitter or Instagram person, but if you really, really, really want to know what's going on uh, with me, you can always find out, but I'm not going to tell you how. <laughs> if we can always find, if we can always find out, but we can't find, figure out how, then I guess we're, we're out, out of luck. Uh, listen, <laughs> I hey, guess so. watch television. Watch television next week. Um, <laughs> I will be doing the the best group every single day on ESPN. So uh, I'll let you know. I mean, that'll that'll tell you how I'm doing. But I don't know, Chris. I'm I'm not a a. Uh, I'm too old to to learn now, so I just kind of like, yeah, I'll let my kids figure out all the social media stuff for me. Um, okay, <laughs> occasionally I'll tweet when there's something really important comes up, but um, kind of like, you know what, I just do me and go from there. Good for you, Scott. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon, in between now and then. Congratulations to your daughter. All the best to you and your family. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate you having me on. Take care, Scott. Catch up soon. Maybe. That is the great Scott Verplank. And, and folks, a tremendous amateur career and a really good PGA career. And I'm looking forward to listening to him describe the action next week at the, at the PGA Championship because Scott's a a wonderful analyst and announcer. Um, he's just a, he's a really good guy and I, I root hard for him. I, I watched him a little bit up on the driving range here at TPC Sugarloaf when he was here in town. And, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what he does at the, at the tradition this weekend. And then as that shoulder continues to heal up, I got a feeling we're going to see Scott at the top of leaderboard on the champions tour again here really soon. So. Hopefully a little bit later this summer we get the opportunity to catch up with him, see how he's feeling, and he's got a win or two under his belt by then. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Keith Hirschland, Linda Harto, and Scott Verplank for joining me tonight. Scheduled to join me next week are one of the top golf course designers anywhere on the planet, Bill Bergen, will be back. You guys know Bill as one of the co-designers of the Macklemore Soap to get a little insight from Bill and gain a little more advantage over my buddies for next week. One of the most positive people on the planet, former Tour Pro Chip Beck, will also be back. One of the top 100 instructors in the game, Debbie Doniger, will also be here. And another one of the top instructors in the game, and a great friend as well, Kevin Roman, will be back on the show as well. So it's going to be a great one, folks. I hope you'll come back and join me and be a part of it. You can listen to this show as a podcast on just about every major podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podcast.co, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Podbean. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to stay up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Plus, there are links to recent episodes and individual segments there for you as well. So whether you've got 20 minutes or two hours, we've got content available for you on our website. Folks, I can't thank you enough for continuing to choose to listen to this show. I know you've got a lot of great golf podcasts out there to listen to. I certainly appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the Tee one of them. Until next week, 
Hit them straight, my friends.